Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. So we are in our chronological study in the Gospels, and this is Lesson 50. And you might be thinking, after over a year, that, John, how long are we going to be doing this thing? Well, as long as it takes. (laughs) But we have made it through the midway point of most of the Gospels. John, not quite yet. And we're going to get into the Gospel of John at one point once again, and we're going to kind of be there for a little while. But John really doesn't pick up until the final uh, few months, and especially the final week of Christ. So there'll be a lot of material that comes from John. We've been often in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, because they are so similar in recounting, and I try to fill these out in your notes. If you have your notes, you'll see points three and four. Both have these accounts in the other Gospels. We'll be looking at uh, who is the greatest, or third point in Luke 9, 46 through 48, but it's also found in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel as well. And then we'll be looking at In our last point today, Jesus warns of offenses in Mark 9, and it's also found in Matthew 18 and Luke 17. I should also say that our first point is also in Luke and Mark, but I didn't put them in there because we actually did the first point as our last point last week in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, but there was something that Matthew included that I'm actually, I try to usually have three points for us each week, but I'm going to back up on that last point to catch one part of a verse that Matthew included that Mark or Luke did not mention. And it's something that we are accustomed to saying in church life. So I think it was important that we touch on it. And so for our first point this week in a message that I entitled Serving Jesus Through Serving Others, we're going to see The question by the disciples to Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? We're going to be looking at Matthew 17, 19 through 21. We did look at this point last week from Mark's gospel, chapter 9. But we uh, just want to include, I want to back up on that, do a little review, and then get that additional point that Matthew took the time to write about something that we have adopted in the church. So I think it's important. Now, this morning, and I've been working on this message uh, since the beginning of last week, but this morning I, I realized in the second point, paying taxes, that only Matthew records this. It's in Matthew 17, 24 through 27. John, Luke, or Mark don't say anything about this, but Matthew does. He talks about the necessity of paying taxes, What was Matthew before Jesus called him to be a disciple? A tax collector. So, yeah, maybe he was just like, oh, we should mention tax collection. He actually will talk about uh, collecting taxes later on in the gospel as well, something that Jesus would say. And this would be uh, a question that was brought to Peter. And two different kinds of taxes will be mentioned, but... uh, Uh, Here it's a tax, a temple tax, so a religious tax. And later on in Matthew's gospel, it would be a government tax, a Roman tax. But the tax collector talks about taxes. Go figure. And then, as I said, our third point, who is the greatest? Luke 9, 46 through 48. Our fourth point, Jesus warns of offenses. Mark 9, 42 through 47. So I want to just go ahead and get us into last week's final point, but now this week's first point, why couldn't we cast it out? We were looking at this from Mark's gospel last week, but now we're going to look at it from Matthew 17, 19 through 21. 
largely because of what Matthew included in verse 20. But we pick up and we'll just read the context. Very short. Matthew 17 verses 19 through 21. Then his disciples came to him privately and said, why could we not cast him out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will be moved and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So although we dealt with this last Sunday and our Actually, it was in our second point. I wanted to back up to that. Matthew adding this little part about the mustard seed of faith that I'll bring into our second subpoint here. But let's just back up first. Verse 19, the whole situation. As we learned last week, Jesus was coming down from a very high mountain, according to Mark, from the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, John and James, and as they came back to where the disciples were gathered, there was a father who had brought his son to the disciples who had been demon-possessed for a long time. Since he was a small child is how the Greek reads in this. So for a very long time, this child has been troubled by this demonic spirit. And Jesus saw the commotion. We talked about this last week. I just kind of picture our Savior seeing the commotion surrounding his disciples that he had left in charge while he was gone and seeing that there was kind of this debate going on and the Lord saying, oh, this can't be good. And to find out that the Father... And the reason I took it from Mark's gospel is because I love the response of the Father to Jesus where the father, when Jesus says to the father, if you only believe, and the father responds to Jesus, I believe, help me with my unbelief. I knew I had to take that account from Mark's gospel because I so often feel like that, and I often pray that to the Lord. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Strengthen my faith is another way that we could say that. But here in Matthew's gospel, We learned that the disciples privately asked him, why couldn't we cast out the demon? They were unable to. And in fact, in Mark's gospel, we learned last week that he told all the people, you faithless generation. So this unbelief was not only a disciple's issue, it was all their issue. You are a faithless generation. Jesus condemned all the people of lacking in their faith. And here Jesus in verse 20, responds to them saying, it is because of your unbelief. It's because of your unbelief. And I think it's amazing to me because Jesus had already empowered the 12 disciples in Matthew 10, verse 8, to heal the sick, to cleanse the lepers, to raise the dead, and to cast out demons. So this was a gift of the Holy Spirit this gift of healing that they had already received, but they found a situation that they were unable to accomplish the task that was before them. This was because they lacked the faith needed for the situation at hand. Jesus said it was because of their unbelief. Jesus also said this kind can only come out through prayer and fasting. So maybe they just... They weren't properly prayed up. They weren't properly fast, fasted up to accomplish the task that was before them. But it goes on in verse 20, and this is why I dropped back to this passage this morning. I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. So faith as small as a mustard seed. Now, there are small seeds, smaller seeds than mustard seeds, but a mustard seed is a pretty small seed to this day. 
the theologians, the scholars say that this was the smallest known seed of their day. We can't know that for sure, but um, Jesus would use the mustard seed in other situations as examples. Here he talks about really the smallness of the faith necessary to see God do great things through those who believe. Uh, I have at times past with youth or with children when teaching this and probably even from this pulpit, uh, bring some, get into the spice cabinet, get some mustard seed out, bring it in, put it in my hand, and it wouldn't matter. I could tell you right now, I have some in my palm of my hand right now, which I don't. I could say it, but you couldn't see it anyways from the distance because it is that small. The smallness in comparison to a mountain and the greatness. He just came down from a high mountain and the route that Jesus was on really puts us by the base of Mount Hermon, which was over 9,000 feet high. And so the comparison would be, the contrast would be very great. And perhaps he was even pointing to the mountain that he had just descended from. But here also, we can't neglect the preparation of this. And I think this perhaps is where we fail at times. Lord, I believe, the Father said, help me with my unbelief. Jesus would come to his disciples and say, all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. And you could say to this mountain, move there and it will be moved. But this kind can only come out except through prayer and fasting that sometimes spiritually we just aren't in the place of seeing the Lord do mountain moving faith situations. We're just not there. It tells us at times that our spiritual battles can only be won and prayer and fasting can only be won on our knees, I was going to say. And whether Jesus was talking about a physical or fictional mountain, the point remains the same. The faith that we have in God can move big problems in our life. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And it amazes me how small our faith can be to see God accomplish great things in our lives. I think that's why it's important when perhaps you've been praying over something and you're not seeing God move. You're not seeing any kind of answer. You might be like the disciples. You're privately asking the Lord, why, why aren't you working in this situation? What's going on, Lord? I think it's important at times like that to rehearse the victories that we have seen the Lord work in our lives in times past. To whether you have a journal, which... I am not a good journaler, but I have journaled in times past. And when I pick up the old journals, it's interesting to me to look at those things, to actually bring to remembrance the things that I had totally forgotten about. But it happened because I wrote it in my journal. And to remember the things that the Lord has done in times past to give us courage for the current circumstances in our life to help strengthen our faith that it would be strengthened enough that we could see the Lord move those mountain-type prayers in our own lives. But these disciplines of prayer and fasting, it's necessary in order to have that mountain-moving faith, that mustard-seed faith in our lives. We come into that second point, and I just titled the second point, Paying Taxes. And I already mentioned that Matthew this morning. I was thinking, oh, yeah, Matthew, the tax collector, he's writing about this. And here we have, they're coming back to Capernaum. And this is either the very last time that we read about Jesus being in Capernaum or he's getting close. He's going to be making his way to Jerusalem. And we're kind of prepping up for that final journey to Jerusalem 
but he's still there coming back to Capernaum. It had been his home base during the Galilean ministry. And those things are winding down. Theologians call this time the year of opposition. The conflict is growing around Jesus now. And they're either even trying to get to Jesus through his disciples. And here it's Peter being picked on by those who received the temple tax. So this is not a Roman tax, but a Roman tax will be dealt with when Jesus makes it to Jerusalem later on in Matthew's gospel. Here it is a temple tax in Matthew 17, 24 through 27. Again, reading the context. Matthew 17, 24 through 27, it says, When they had come to Capernaum, and those who received the temple tax came to Peter and says, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he answered, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their own sons or from strangers? And Peter said to Jesus, from strangers, I know this one, Lord, it's from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. And when you open its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. So the tax collectors, the temple tax collectors at this point, this is a Jewish tax, totally a Jewish tax. And it is comes to us in Exodus 30, verse 13. Comes right out of the Mosaic law. It says, Exodus 30, verse 13. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. And these are all the males 20 years old and above. So every male, whether rich or poor, it didn't matter your class, didn't matter your position. This was an annual tax that had to be paid of. So everyone, a half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 giras, a half a shekel, he shall offer to the Lord. And so this was a required tax of all the males, 20 years old and above, it was a tax that was to provide for the care of the tabernacle and later on the temple. And it was to come from all males and uh, half a shekel or more. And so that tells us the coin that Peter got out of the fish's mouth was a shekel. And so it covered the tax for himself and that for Jesus. So Peter answered, of course, he answered yes to the tax collectors, but he didn't know. It's pretty clear to me that Peter was just kind of anticipating, of course he does. But Jesus had a question for Peter when he came in. Who do those who are in authority collect taxes from? From their sons or from their subjects? Of course, their subjects. And then Jesus said, well, then the sons are free. One of the Bible commentators said of this, for Jesus, the son of God, to pay tribute to support the temple would be equivalent to paying tribute to support himself. So the sons are free. It reminds me of a statement by Jesus in John eight thirty six: If the son sets you free, you are free indeed. But Jesus instructed Peter to go out and to go fishing. So he told the fisherman who had called to be fisher of men to go back, cast a fish into the Sea of Galilee. And they were near the sea there at Capernaum to catch a fish. And it was a miraculous catch. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've fished in my lifetime. I've caught fish, I've caught them, gutted them, skinned them, fried them, ate them. I've never found anything but fish guts inside of fish. 
But Peter found a shekel. And so it was a miraculous catch for Peter. See, Peter had to be obedient. He might say, well, that's a ridiculous thing. In fact, Peter was a fisherman, and I wonder how many times he had skinned, uh, descaled, gutted fish to prepare them for market, and had found anything. But now Jesus tells him to cast a hook in, and then the very first fish that he catches to look in its mouth, and there he would find this shekel, this coin, that we would not be an offense. And I think at times Jesus might call us to cast a hook of faith into the waters of this life before we're able to see the miraculous work of Christ working through our lives. Sometimes we have to, we would say it this way, we have to take a step of faith. Here it's actually uh, casting out the hook to see what might bite. And may we likewise cast out our hook of faith our hooks of faith into the waters of this life, that we might see the Lord do work through our lives. But sometimes we've got to be willing to be obedient to the Lord, to do the things that the Lord has called us to do, to take action, to actually go forward, to take those forward progress steps as the Lord is preparing us for a greater work or the plan that he has for our lives. And I believe sometimes we hold back. We might think, well, that's ridiculous, Lord. I've been fishing a number of times. Never caught a fish with money in its mouth, so I don't think I'm going to do this. So it was Peter's option to either be obedient or disobedient to the Lord. Through obedience, he found that the Lord not only provided for Jesus's temple tax, but also for Peter himself. He was benefited by it as well. He was blessed by it as well. So 2 Corinthians 6.3 says, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. So there's a principle of doing ministry that we are not to give offense. It doesn't mean that we don't speak truth. Today, in speaking truth, a lot of people might be offended. So you, you have to really balance that. If it's truth, then how you speak the truth might be whether you give offense or not, maybe you'll speak the truth in a very kind and gentle way. It still might offend. And then you're called to bring offense in that fashion. But we should do our best also in ministry to try not to bring offense. And that's becoming a very difficult thing to do in this world. In fact, we'll find it out in our fourth point. And uh, I will say that my fourth point will bring Offense to many in our world today, especially here in our country. But we're not there yet. Point three, who's the greatest? So here we get into the mindset of the disciples, the 12, our beloved disciples, Peter, James, John, Matthew. And we go through the list of the 12 and we think these great men of faith and we discover they were just like you and I. As they were making their way to Capernaum, according to Matthew chapter 9, but we're going to look at this account from Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verses 46 through 48. Again, very short. I'll read the context, only three verses. Now, Mark tells us that they were going back to Capernaum. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. So Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And he said, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you shall be greatest. So they're making their way back to Capernaum. Here we have Matthew getting in a situation where Jesus is sitting down. Maybe he took a break. All right, boys. He knew what they were disputing about. Time to take a break. We're going to have a little object lesson here. People, no doubt, following and gathering around Christ at this time as well. They're making their way back to Capernaum. The disciples are arguing about their future positions in the kingdom of God. Remember, 
our beloved 12 disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they viewed Jesus as the Messiah of the first coming. They thought that Jesus was going to come and finally just get rid of Rome, out of Israel, take control of the nation. He is the son of David. He would be king on the throne. And because we are the 12, because we are with him, we'll have those positions Like all kings, prime ministers, presidents, dictators, they surround themselves even to this day with cabinet members, statesmen, diplomats. (laughs) Try to put an S in there in the wrong spot. Diplomats, public servants. I love that one. We have people in our government today, they describe themselves as public servants. And you look at their lives and you think, Yeah, I think you're really serving yourself. The 12 currently desired such prominence. In Romans 12, 3, it says, For I say, through the grace given me, Paul speaking here, to everyone who is among you, do not think himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly, as God has dealt to each one of us a measure of faith. We should desire to serve one another. And we'll have different positions, different roles uh, in the community of faith, but our goal should be to serve one another. When I was uh, out, Lily and I, we lived out in California with the kids for a couple of years. I was attending the School of Ministry, and uh, at the time, Pastor Chuck's second, his number two pastor was Ellie Romaine, Ellie Romaine, they just called him by his last name, Romaine, um, and he never shared what his, I know his first name, but he never shared that, and you wouldn't dare call him by it. But uh, anyways, he was speaking to the class at the School of Ministry one day, and only once did he sit with us and talk about the position of being the second. He actually wrote, had the notes that became a small booklet that he produced Uh, talked about that position as a second, but he was teaching our class from the notes that he was preparing to write that small book. And he said one, I think it was a Saturday evening, and he was walking the church grounds, and he heard some kids in the boys' bathroom. They were making a ruckus. They were making so much noise that Romaine went into the bathroom to chase them out. And he found at the time Chuck Smith and uh, David Hawking in the sanctuary bathrooms. So they were large bathrooms. So Calvary Chapel Coast Mesa could seat about 3,000 people. So just think of the restrooms for a place that can hold 3,000 people. And uh, when he went in there to chase the kids out of there, he found his senior pastor and an assistant pastor in there singing praises to the Lord, cleaning the toilets, on a Saturday night before the Sunday morning service. And Pastor Chuck was like that all the time. In fact, one time when he was speaking to the pastors, he would often condemn the pastors at pastors' conferences, saying that you guys are the filthiest, dirtiest people in the world. You come to a conference, you bring in water, you bring in a soda, you have wrappers, and then you leave between conference and you leave your stuff just sitting there. You don't even pick up after yourselves. And so he would often get a, get after his pastors and... Uh, Though the Lord gives us a position, don't think too highly of yourself. Paul would write, Romans 12:3, think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We'll all be judged equally by God. God gives us gifts. The question is, how do we use those gifts that he gives us for his kingdom's glory? And here we find even the disciples at the Last Supper, you would think the Lord said, all right, boys, what were you talking about? Now I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to set a child on my lap. I'm going to talk about humility. And that should have been the end of the uh, the story here. But we find, as what we call the Last Supper, that Luke tells us in Luke 22, 23, that they were still arguing about this. 
Because what happens when you get 13 guys together, and again, this would happen at the pastor's conference when Pastor Chuck was living. Um, There were always guys who would try to position themselves to sit near Chuck. Everyone knew where Chuck sat when a conference was going on. They knew the area he sat, where he liked to, whether it was in the the dining hall or in the conference hall, they knew where Pastor Chuck would sit. And they would just like, oh, I didn't know you were going to be sitting here. I just happened to, you know, sit at this table, the number one table that everybody knew that Chuck would be at. Um, And there were guys who would like to jockey that position in. The, The disciples did the same thing. Jesus and his 12 at the Last Supper, that's what we call it. Jesus had to reprimand them again in Luke 22:23. He says, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am as one among you who serves. So Jesus, they were arguing the same thing later on as well. So Jesus perceived their thoughts. We're back in Luke 9, 47 and 48. He took a little child and set him by him. And he says, whoever will receive a little child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So you receive the father as well. For he who is least among you will be great. So in that society, children were the least. They were considered the least, whether Jewish or the Greco-Roman society, Greco-Roman society. Children were not really very thought highly of. And yet Jesus said, to receive a child is like receiving me. To receive me is like receiving my father. So Jesus was saying the path to greatness is a path of service. Matthew 23, 11 and 12. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus lays out this new system of hierarchy that would take place in his kingdom The kingdom of heaven not being like the kingdom of this world, no matter how good an empire might be, a kingdom, a nation might appear to be, they always prove inadequate to govern their people in true righteousness. Even our own nation has its limits. And it's rare to see a true servant. They like to call themselves in our nation that we are servants of the people, but that is rare. It's rare to see in our government. It's rare to see in our churches as well. And yet servanthood is at the heart of the kingdom of heaven. And may we serve one another because Jesus has served us. So Jesus still, this child, perhaps still sitting on his lap. We're going to look at this final point from Mark 9, verses 42 through 47. So the children are still in view at this scene. And again, the context is a very short passage. Well, this one's a little bit longer, but I'm going to open up in verse 42 on it. And we'll get to the rest of the verses in this passage. Whoever calls one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Whoever causes one of these little ones, a child perhaps here in this scene that has been depicted in the synoptic gospels for us as all Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell about these accounts. Um, Maybe the child now was sitting on Jesus' lap. Jesus puts him down, puts her down. She runs back to the friends. And now Jesus is pointing to the group of children and says, whoever would cause one of these little ones to stumble, better if a millstone, a millstone weighing about 500 pounds, that were hung around his neck, he was cast into the sea and drowned in the depths of the sea. If you're in trouble swimming, I was when I was a teenager. I went through my certification process, uh, got certified as a lifeguard. And, you know, they taught you about you're out in the open water, things you should do if you're 
fall out of a boat and you're fully clothed, you have shoes on, you have like Levi's on and stuff, you want to kind of strip down. You don't swim well with all that extra weight. In fact, you could use your jeans to become a flotation device for you. But uh, you're not going to survive if you got trying to drag along a 500-pound millstone. It's not going to happen. As I was reading that, I was just thinking of the mafia and the old concrete boots that they would put on people. That, interestingly enough, up in Las Vegas area, up by Hoover Dam, uh, the water level's being very low. They've been discovering a lot of uh, bodies over the last year out there that have been, uh, what they said about the mafia was very true. They've been discovering some stuff out there. But Jesus accounts harming a child to this. It'd be better if you just drown in the deep sea. That seems pretty harsh. If you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, you're causing a little one to stumble. Now, there's been an open attack on families in the United States today. Back in 2019 through 21 here in Illinois, they were considering lowering the age of school children to, from five to age six, and it didn't pass, but they're trying to lower it down from age five to age, age five, <laughs> let's say it right, from six to age five, they're trying to get it lower. Now, at the same time, and it's still happening, they haven't succeeded in it, but it's in the budget, it's in this last presidential budget that is just, you know, the trillions that they have for this. And there's so many different things at play in this, but they're trying to have universal uh, preschool from three to four years old. And we think, well, what's the big deal, Pastor John, whether one, two or three years where the government school system gets our children? What's the big deal? And I could come back and say, what's the big deal? I could spitefully say it several times, like repeat it three times. What's the big deal? The big deal is that the sooner the government gets your kids, the less opportunity you have to nurture them in the things of God. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble in one of the other gospels, they believe in me. You're causing them to stumble. It's the sooner... Our government gets a hold of our children, the more opportunity our government has to pull the children away from biblical truths. So I looked up some statistics. On average, an American family gets less than 40 minutes of quality time with their children per day. And on the weekend, almost 45 minutes. So they average it all out. So here it is. Um, I was reading it wrong. So the overall average is 40 minutes of quality time per day. During the weekdays, it's 45 minutes. During the weekend, you get two and a half hours. But when you average that all out, it's uh, 40 minutes a day. You get quality time with your children. That averages out on an annual basis. I did a little math. I checked it three times. I hope I'm right. But that 40 minutes a day averages out to 237 hours of quality time with your children each year. On the other hand, children and youth spend an average of 180 days in school, averaging 1,080 days or 1,080 hours in school. So they have your kids on an annual basis for 1,080 hours, you have them for 237 hours where you're actually investing in them. And so the difference is, if you do the math, and again, I checked my math twice, the school system gets an average time of 843 hours more with your children than you do. 843 hours more time to teach CRT, to teach humanistic agenda that many of our governor's schools are teaching today. Think about the trans agenda. I don't have my phone with me. I looked this up with Lily 
the other night. I was talking about this with Lily. Maybe something came up on news that reminded me of it. I knew I was pulling this into my notes for today, but the issue of the trans agenda, uh, how many genders, and, and just understand this. this. Genders is a term that they're trying to put into our psyche that trying to say that your gender is different than your sex that you're born with. There are only two sexes: It's male and female. That's all it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman, male and female. He created them. There's only two sexes. Gender is a word that instead of saying sex, they say gender to try to expand it. And I believed I looked it up. Uh, A few years ago, I looked it up. They said there's 112 genders. Um, I found it's on my phone still because I haven't got off that page, but my phone's in my office. And I think they had 83 different genders. Either way, you know, 112, 83. It's just like incredible what they're saying. But I had put in my notes here of this. So genders, you think of the trans agenda, that many are actively engaged in grooming um, between uh, sexual preference or gender, as they would word it, word it. But in 2021, it tells us, and so I pulled this out statistically from Reuters. And so um, this is just a secular site. For 2021, about 42,000 children and teens across the United States received a diagnostic diagnosis of gender dysphoria nearly tripling since 2017. And so gender dysphoria being defined as, this is their article, as distress caused by discrepancy between a person's gender identity and one's assigned to them at birth. So you don't assign gender at birth, you assign male or female. So they're changing the definition, that's all they do is, right? They change the definition. Um, gender, they actually, I'm surprised they used it, gender dysphoria. Now they describe it as gender affirming care. They change definitions to try to kind of make things um, nicer for us. But the analysis found at least 121,000, almost 122,000 children from six to 17 were diagnosed with gender dysphoria from 2017 to 2021. But that increase is incredible because um, we find that it's becoming popular and it's being pushed on our children. The increase is not because children are struggling. The increase is because people are teaching something that they are not. They're teaching it and it's devastating what they're doing to our children. So, Think about what Jesus said. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. And there are many who are causing our little ones to stumble. I was thinking about, and uh, so I have thoughts on our economy, our world, um, the whole COVID thing. And it goes way back to Obamacare uh, coming under a different government health system that was different than what we'd known in our country before. When Obamacare came into play, doctors who had private practices ran to the shelter of hospital corporations. They lost their independence. They became an employee until instead of their own boss, even though they're still highly regarded in the hospital system, they are still employees in that system. And I believe that every all the nonsense that happened around uh, the pandemic of the last few years happened because we have a lot of doctors who are now employees instead of having private practice. And uh, if it would have been like it was before Obamacare, I doubt if they would have accomplished the things that they would have they had accomplished during that time. If doctors still practice independently. Lily and I, our own doctor, got fired because he refused to get the jab. He took a stand. It cost him his position at his hospital. But I also believe if doctors would still be in that private practice, I was just never applied this to this particular situation, but this gender-affirming care, 
I doubt if that would be an issue now too because our doctors are under the corporate heading of these corporations. They're being told how they have to do, how they have to speak, how they have to act. We don't have that independence that we had once had. And those who stand upon biblical principles find themselves out of work, out of a job. And uh, I think our nation has been gearing up for these days and they have us exactly where they need us. So we have a choice. Are we going to go along with it? Are we going to take a stand to speak truth? Our goal is to bring salvation of Jesus Christ to others. It's not to tear them down. It's not to cause them to stumble. It's to speak truth in this day and age, even though the truth might bring us into a difficult situation. We end up in verses 43 through 48. Now Jesus talks about causing yourself to stumble. And I'm going to read these straight through. He has a a refrain on here that comes from the very last verse of the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, I believe it's verse uh, 24. I was going to say 48. I would have been way off. Um, The very last verse of the book of Isaiah, though. So reading it through, he says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed, So eternal life maimed rather than have two hands to go to hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into fire that will never be quenched. Whereas the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. If your eyes cause you to eye, singular, cause you to sin, pluck it out. Be better for you to walk into the kingdom with one eye rather than two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. That's the Isaiah 66, 24, the last verse of Isaiah. Where their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. We'll read the whole verse in a moment from Isaiah. So first of all, Jesus is not talking literally. I'm not expecting anyone to show up at church Next week, missing a hand or a foot or an eye. Don't want to see that. He's talking figuratively because this is what I understand. It's like, brother, that's too bad you chopped your hand off because I think you can still sin with the other hand. Oh, yeah, I need to chop that one off too. Too bad you chopped that foot off because I think your other foot can still cause you to sin. Oh, yeah. I mean, by the time we make it to heaven, we'd be a stump. We'd have to like just take it all off. Pluck out my ears, pluck out my eyes, take my hands, my feet, take it all. He's not talking literally here, it's figuratively. It's really telling us if we would like to get to heaven apart from Christ, this is what it would take. And you'd never make it. Salvation is impossible apart from the work of Christ upon the cross. Yet if we were to take this passage literally by the time we make it to heaven, we would be little stumps. No hands, no arms, no feet, no legs, no eyes, no ears. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so he's talking about entering into eternity versus entering into hell. Gehenna, as he used here in the Greek, uh, Gehenna was a place that In the Old Testament, it was a place where they offered sacrifices of their children to Molech. And King Ahaz and Manasseh were guilty of this. But good King Jehoiah destroyed those pagan altars. He burned them up. And by the time of Jesus' day, Gehenna became their garbage dump. And the fires never went out of the dump. It was always smoldering, always smoking, always burning. It became a very vivid image of hell. And Jesus three times used that refrain from Isaiah in Mark 9, 44, 46, 48, coming from the very last verse of Isaiah 66, verse 24. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched, They shall be abhorrence to all flesh. 
So hell, a very real place of great eternal torment. You're not going to work your way out of it. There is no purgatory that's in our Bible. You're not going to work your way out. It's eternal. The only way out is through the victory of Jesus upon the cross. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57. It says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we strive to give no offense, but rather point people to Jesus that they might be saved. And Father, we pray that that would be our desire. We live in a world that people are just, they're offended over everything. And it's not, Lord, that we as Christians are to cower. Lord, I still have, I still wear my Christian t-shirts, my Christian uh, sweatshirts, bumper stickers, that they may very well offend some. It's not that we are to cower in a corner. We're to speak truth. We're to do it in gentleness and kindness, but still to stand on truth. We're not to bring harm, Lord. We're not to bring offense, not to bring offense to ourselves or to others, especially our children. Lord, we live in a nation where we know the family unit is under attack. We know our children are under attack And if the attack continues, Lord, I fear what the next generation might become. If they get our children, Lord, they get our nation. But Lord, we are praying that you would do a work of revival. We're praying, Lord, that you would do a work in your spirit that would overcome the evil one in our nation today, that we would... Pray, Lord, that you would move mountains, that we would be a church that would want to fast and pray, that, Lord, we'd cry out to you and say, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Lord, that we would have that mustard seed type faith. Lord, that we'd be willing to cast out our hook into the waters of this life, that we might have these miraculous catch. All the things that you've promised to those who believe in you, Lord, we believe that you can do such a work. Work in us now, Lord. Work in this church. Work in your church, Lord, throughout the world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, and that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace.